Thursday. Hi, Emma. Hi, Kelly. How was your day? My day was very busy, busy, busy. And we're not allowed to say busy anymore. Oh. Was that our last guest that said, yes, that was our last Jennifer guest. She said, busy should not be allowed in our vocabulary anymore. Because but you're the one who said it. I know. That's why I stopped myself. Bad. So what, Bad would, be, what would be another word? Um, Very filled. Filled. Filled yeah. with wonderful, wonderful things. It's amazing. It's Thursday, though. And I hear that I thought, you know, we'd get a weekend here in Canada to to just be apart. And it was Thanksgiving and it's a big deal over here. We get three days. But you guys also have Columbus Day, you were saying. Yes. What does that mean? Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. I know who Columbus <laughs> is, but do you have a tradition in particular? I guess I should rephrase no. my question. We don't, we actually don't we even have like off of work. Pilgrim thing. No, we don't do anything. Okay. What do the Canadians do for Thanksgiving? Same things the American do minus the sweet potato pie casserole, which is a shame because I don't know who the genius is who mixed sweet potatoes with brown sugar, threw some marshmallows on there and torched it and was like, this is Thanksgiving. But I'd like to meet that person because seriously. And Black Friday. I mean, if you're watching Mr. Friday, Mr. Black no. Friday or Mrs. No, that's the thing here. It's well, you don't have Black Friday. Well, we do by default because now we've adopted the thing, but we'll go into a whole Black Friday episode because I have so many hilarious stories. I actually have a picture, front page newspaper of the New Hampshire Times, um, not the New Han Manchester, New Hampshire. That's where we were. And you see me running through a man's legs as he tried to cut in front of me at Best Buy 10 years ago. Whole story. I'd been camping yeah. there. Like I'd been peeing in a cup, so he wasn't getting there. Yeah. Went into Black Friday, but now the Canadians are trying to do it. And you know, we just, we can't, we just don't have the buying power that you guys do. We're 38 million people. Yeah. Well, we have a very special thing coming Black Friday that we will not discuss, but maybe we can make a whole episode about Black Friday and Emma's craziness. DVDs, when they were still cool people, $2 at Best Buy, you know, it was a thing. But what we do do here, and I do—I just said do-do. Do. Um, in Quebec, actually, where I live, Montreal, Quebec, um, uh, the, Frank the francophones, I should say, you know, the majority of francophones, real Quebecois, don't necessarily celebrate Thanksgiving very much. Um, but the rest of Canada, we do. So traditionally, we have turkey, and so I'm Franco-Canadian. And so turkey's, turkey's a thing, and we do the thing, and... But I think as all things, and I've said things seven times, I'm, I'm very aware, traditions seem to be losing their oomph. Like when I was little, it was such a big deal. Yeah. Everyone would get together and it was such a special time, whether it was Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas. And I feel like it's such hard work to keep those traditions going mm -hmm. for my kids. And by the time they have kids, if they have kids, yeah, I don't know. And it's but enough of, about that. That's a whole other show. We'll unpack my yep. emotions behind traditions. <laughs> I'm so excited for you to meet Dr. Robin Buckley. Well, before we before we do that, oh, Merry Christmas! Thank you. <laughs> Did you? Are want you gifting me the gift of me doing a workshop with you? Yeah. Is that what that is? I'm gifting you a banner. Oh, thank you. Very kind. Oh, yes. 
I guess Kelly wants me to tell everyone that we still have a few spots left. And before I say that, I should say we're back. So we gave y'all the summer off. You had a couple months to chill out with the family and enjoy the summer and the barbecue and all of that. And so did we. But we are back with our Mindset Reset workshops, which are at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Sunday. And she's saying Merry Christmas because they're free. They've been free since the beginning. They will always be free. And before you shake your head and you're like, oh, it's free. What is all this about? We really dive into the rules of the mind, all of the stuff that we talk about all the time, subconscious, limiting beliefs, if you're not sure what that is, how childhood trauma could be, you know, causing you to hold on to this weight for whatever reason. We go through all of that, the rules of the mind, how to upgrade your mindset, how to talk to yourself, to just have a, you know, a more positive outlook on life, how to upgrade your inner child. And the second hour is an actual live hypnosis session which we help you identify the limiting belief of you know what's behind this protective weight the workshop is free just come hang out with kelly and i cup of coffee on a sunday morning we're back and we have a few spots left for this sunday where should they go if they want to know more they should go to our website which is right up top in the corner look thechemamethod.com and we put a big banner up there because it's we're back and we're excited that we're back so Go sign up there. I think there's three spots left. And there's three spots left, yeah. Yeah. And the main thing that a lot of women say that they like about the workshops, I mean, besides hanging out with us on a Sunday morning, yeah, um, <laughs> is that you get my onesie. You get the feeling of like be, finally finding people that are like you. Yeah. So you get to you find your tribe. Yeah. You get to be with your tribe and you get to see that there are other women struggling with the same issues that you are and you get to go on a journey with everybody. And then you go into our Kema tribe and then you're with us yeah. for life. You're with us for life and it's completely free. We don't, we, all we want is for you to come hang out with us and hear what we have to say because the message is so important. You know, we're all about ditching diets, but we don't just say it without, you know, backing up what we say. We have the facts behind it and the workshops are very important for Kelly and I because it's a way for us to, you know, have many people come and hear the message that we're trying to, you know, to spread that it is possible to reclaim your wellness, take control of your health, and it doesn't have to cost you anything. You have everything inside of you to take those steps and do that. And we have people from all over the world. We yeah, had, you know, people from Spain, from England, people from Mexico, from Costa Rica, people from all over the world are coming to these workshops. And it's, you know, it's always so heartwarming, warm, warming, warming. I can't say that word, but it tickles your heart. Is that the, the message is the same. You know, we feel so alone in our struggles. We're so ashamed to talk about it because we feel like no one would ever understand. But when you come to one of these workshops, we all feel that way at some point in time. And so that's what's really cool. Yeah. And you get to feel lighter when you walk away. Regardless of coffee away. with us. And yeah. we're so fun on Sunday mornings. Okay. I feel like Dr. Buckley needs a proper introduction. And so tonight's show is all about how to navigate through the transformation within our relationships. So romantic relationships social relationships, our friends, families, co-workers, when we're going through change 
and we're so excited for ourselves and all of that jazz. And as we know, not everybody's always happy for us. How do we manage our expectations? What does that look like? And Dr. Robin Buckley is the woman to shed some light on that. She is a clinical psychologist and she's also the creator of, I don't know what this means, but she created a proprietary coaching method. So let's bring her on and find out what that means. Boom. Robin. Robin. Welcome. Welcome to Flip the Script. You get your banner here. Here you go. <laughs> so, welcome to the show. And as we do with all of our guests, this moment is all about you. May you share with our viewers um, who you are, but what is the journey that led you to what you're doing today? Yeah, so um, just as a quick correction, I'm not a clinical psychologist. My, my PhD is in clinical psychology, but there's a difference in the field between a clinical psychologist, which means you sat through a horrendous test and, yeah. and have that title, and then someone who uh, is a mental health therapist. So I did that for a very long time, working in the mental health realm and traditional mental health fields. But what I found is that mental health very often is an intervention model that when there's a crisis, then people come in for therapy or counseling. And for me, I like prevention. I like starting a place where there isn't a crisis, learning how to build on your strengths so that when things get challenge, challenging, you know how to manage them or you can tap yeah. into the strengths to manage them. So, so what is your exact title for correction? I do apologize okay. for that. That's okay. So the exact title that I use is an ex I'm an executive coach and I'm a couples coach. A couples so coach. Yep. And I so your PhD is in clinical psychology. Yes. That's so cool. It is. It was it was a great melding of my long years going through a graduate program and then at the same time right after I got my PhD I then got my coaching certificate and coaching at that time was not you know, not as cool as it is today. Yeah. <laughs> not as widespread as it is today. Yeah. But, you thank the pandemic for that one. Yeah. So it's it it provided me the opportunity yeah. to do the two things I love, which is helping people understand the brain uh, brain behavior connection, as well as helping themselves because they're people are the experts of their own lives. We are. Yeah. We just help them clear out the cobwebs so that they can actually achieve the goals that they want. One hundred percent. And so how what was the road that led you there? What's the journey of your life in a nutshell that got you interested in this kind of work? Um, in a nutshell, I'd say my parents, my parents, uh, my dad was a teacher his whole career. My mom was a nurse and they emulated the idea that you can do what you love and still serve others. And honestly, that's what led me to follow this interest in working with people to help them help themselves that I wanted to be able to, I certainly love figuring, you know, what, what makes people tick and, and how to best use that information to help people. But the idea that when people stop working with me and hopefully they stop working with me quickly because they've figured out how to take care of themselves that, you know, I've made a difference in getting them to the happiness they really want. And I, yeah. I really am honored to be able to do that work. Yeah, it's very important that you don't become a crutch for other people, that then they need you for life. Yes, I, I, I always pause when people are so wonderful about saying, oh, I'm so excited to meet you because 
I've been going to therapy for 22 years, once a week. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a long time to be going to one person to try and get the answer. So yeah. ready for so, it. Yeah, there's lots of different ways and lots of different styles that therapy and that coaching can be done. And it's finding the one that works for you in the most efficient way. Mm -hmm. Have you ever struggled with your weight? <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah, actually, I had two different spectrums. Um, so when I went to college, I put on the freshman whatever. I, at some yeah. point, I stopped counting. And my mom was really great. My mom was a nurse, as I said. And when I came back that first summer after my freshman year, um, she said, you know what? I signed you up at a gym because your sister, your younger sisters missed you. And I think she'd really love to be able to do that with you and work out. And I'm like, oh, okay. And she's like, and we're going to be switching to this low, you know, low calorie, not low calorie, but American heart cookbook way of eating because your dad has high cholesterol. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah. And all of that was true. <laughs> But the real goal was to help me without saying, hey, you know, yeah. what's going on? So when I went back to college at the end of the summer, I called my mom and I said, mom, it's so weird. Pe people literally don't recognize me. And she's like, of course not. You worked really hard and, you know, you, you got in better shape, better health. And I said, why didn't you say that? She's like, because that's not what you needed to hear. Yeah. Um, you're always good about helping other people. And I knew that was the way to get you to invest in yourself. Oh, so was mom. Yeah, she's amazing. So that was one end of the, the spectrum. On the other side, um, when I was in graduate school, so ironically, I'm going through a clinical psych program. I'm working in a psych hospital and I'm running eating disordered groups for young women. And I was going through anorexia at the time. Oh my God. So the irony is all the people who you would think would know the signs would come yeah. up to me and say, oh my God, you look great. Like you, you've lost some weight. And of course that only reinforces what I was doing, which was eating an apple and a plain yogurt a day and working out. Whoa. Yeah, it was, it was not, it, you know, it, it's all about control as you two also know, and, and some of your listeners might know, but you know, when, when you're dealing with that, it's, I wanted to find control and everything else in my life was spiraling what I felt out of control. So I controlled what I could, which was my food. Yeah. And, and um, I'm glad to say that I, I've never gone back to that, but it's, it's a conscious realization that eating disorders are an addiction and yeah, 100%. like any other addiction, it's knowing that you can always fall back on that if you're not aware of the signs and conscious of what's going on. So yeah, I've, I've been on both sides. And, How did um, you get out of it though? Because you said, I'm not, I've never gone back, but anybody who's watching, who's maybe going through something similar, or people who have no idea what it, I, I have no idea what it would be like to be anorexic. Yeah. I'm on the other side of the, you know, the, the binge eating side, but what does it feel like? And how did you, when did you hit a wall and you were like, something has to give? Yeah. Um, it's, it's horrible. Well, I, I'd love to say it's horrible from the beginning, but right at the beginning, it's not because you are getting that positive reinforcement, unfortunately, from people you know, rewarding you and, and affirming what you're doing without realizing what they're really doing. And, you know, there's, there's sometimes an energy rush right at the beginning, but very quickly it overtakes you. And it, it's, it's such a all encompassing obsession and it's terrifying, but it, it, the obsessions are so intense. It's hard to stop. I would also like to say I pulled myself out, but it wasn't. It was my sister who um, is one of my best friends. And she she surprised me by showing up in my apartment to uh, to surprise me with a weekend visit. 
And, you know, as sisters do, I was changing in front of her to like go out and she gasped out loud and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Getting changed. Let's go. She's like, what are you doing? She's like, Robin, seriously, look at yourself. And I got pissed because I was, yeah. I was being yeah. defensive. And she jealous. Walked, yeah. And she walked out of my apartment and I'm like, well, you know, I had lots of not. Everyone, everyone else is telling you you're looking great. Exactly. <laughs> and she went to the grocery store and she came back with like 12 bags of groceries. Cause then she went into my kitchen and saw there was nothing in there. And I remember at that moment, seeing the food come into my apartment, I curled up on my kitchen floor in the corner and just, started sobbing because yeah. I was so terrified that this food was coming in my apartment. And she sat down with me and probably sat with me for two hours saying, this isn't good. This isn't yeah. normal to have this reaction to food. And, um, and she did threaten me. She said, if you can't get this under control, I'm telling mom. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and my mom is wonderful, but my mom doesn't take any, anything when yeah. someone is in health crisis. So um, so my sister was, was really, she said, you need to talk to people and you have people around you in graduate school. You need to find some help. Yeah. So it was really her support and her, um, her regular checking in with me. Um, she came to visit me every weekend for months to make sure I was staying on track. Wow. Um, and then from there, what I learned is as I moved and as I got into new environments, the one thing that I learned was to tell somebody, somebody had to know what my hat and what my history was and yeah, keep an eye on you. Exactly. So that has been my, my guiding rod that whenever, you know, when I was younger and I was in more geographic transition, somebody knew so that they could, they could help me if I needed it. Wow. That's amazing. And what if somebody's going through this right now and they don't have a remarkable family as you clearly do, who, you know, you guys are very close-knit and supportive and non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. How would you tell someone that you're struggling with this? Uh, I think the challenge, Emma, is that you don't always know you're struggling with it. Yeah, that to it, admit to yourself, right? Exactly, that it, it, it feels good to be in control of it. So if you have that awareness, then it is reaching out to someone saying, I don't, I don't know how to fix this, but this is all, you know, this is how much I... I work out or don't work out or how much I eat or don't eat, you know, but it's having that awareness first. And that is, that is really hard. I think my sister caught me right on the edge of when I was going to really spiral into a very much more challenging place. So I think that when it comes to how do you help yourself, it's, it's really having some kind of candid realization of Things don't feel good and I don't necessarily know how to stop it or even if I want to stop it because it, it, there's something about this that is helping me. That, that it, but how are you functioning on a yogurt and an apple and working out? Like you're, I, you're not weak, like you're not telling yourself, um, you know, as, as we get bigger, we're like, okay, none of my clothes fits. There might be an issue. I'm, I might need to stop and breathe. But aren't you just weak? Yeah. You are, but it, you get used to it. How does your like? I don't. It's you so. Do get used to it. And for a while, what's really scary, and I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, but at the beginning of a restrictive uh, diet or d- disorder, there's this there's a manic episode or a manic piece to it. So you get this rush of energy, and you don't need a lot of sleep, 
and you are just functioning, you know, very much in a manic state. It's when that goes away that all of a sudden, then kind of that realization of, oh, I don't, this doesn't feel good. But the, the option of going back to eating in a healthful way, mm-hmm. that's not an option because you want that control. I, I was coming out of an abusive relationship and that's what, and, and the pressures of grad school. And that's what's triggered control. So I wanted control over something. Mm-hmm. And it's not conscious. It's not like you say, well, what can I control? Oh, I could control food. It doesn't work that yeah. way. It's yeah. just all of a sudden, yes. you know, one day you're like, oh, I don't need breakfast. Uh, let's see how, you know, I, I probably could go even without lunch. And you find yeah. ways to justify it. Do you and lose then, touch of your hunger cues? Because going to bed hungry sucks. You, you do and you don't. I mean, well, some want to be thin. Going to bed hungry is normal. Exactly. And it's, and it's a, it's almost a, a validation that you're doing a good job because yeah. you, you know, yeah, you're hungry, but you're able to control it and you're yeah. able to ignore it and look how good you look or you think you look, you think you look, you know, yeah. look at what he listen to what other people are saying to you at the beginning before, you know, they actually do see what's going on. Yeah. Um, so you, the, the hunger cues are there. It's not that they all of a sudden go away. It's just that those become almost like the the gold star that what you're doing is truly in control. How did you get your, heal your relationship with food? Because you had that anxiety, right? You know, when food and you were going through all of that, how did you then get that under control so that you're not anxious when you see food or that you, you know, you're actually eating a full meal? How did you get that under control? Uh, That was hard. It was really hard. I mean, honestly seeing how, how true, I can't say sad, how truly disturbed my sister was and hurting her like that was really that a little bit of enough of a shift that it was like, I started eating for her. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how it started. Like, okay, just, just don't, don't make her sad like that again. I mean, I, I said, I was crying on the floor. So was she. Yeah. And, um, you know, don't let, don't let mom find out and then make mom sad or angry depending or both. So it was, at first it was, I was doing it for other people, um, which I, you know, isn't always the best place to start, but it, it worked for me. Mm-hmm. And then over time it was trying to realize and, and starting to realize. And as I talked to people and, you know, worked with a therapist that food was a way to simply fuel my body. It was not about what I looked like. It mm-hmm. was how to be the strongest I could be. And I do pride myself on being a strong woman. So it, it then it created a cognitive dissonance. Well, if I'm, I'm not feeling my body to be the strongest, I'm really not as strong as, as I think I am or I want to be. So that started playing a role in, okay, then the food is a method to be as strong a woman as I can possibly be. And that was the replacement thought for me of food is bad versus that's what we say every day. Food is cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, that that is all it is. I mean, our society creates it into this emotional connection. Yeah, we eat to survive. to survive instead of survive to eat. Right. Exactly. When did you? When did you? How long did it take you from that point of sitting in your, you know, in your kitchen with your sister, to getting to a point where you were comfortable in your own skin, comfortable in your body, and food eating? wasn't consuming your every thought? Oh, that's a great question. I would say certainly it was a year before I really 
really could see food in a more positive, healthy light. But very honestly, I think to this day, there are times when I feel my stress level go up, I can almost, now I recognize the signs. So it was probably about the last uh, warning sign was probably eight years ago. And I was under a lot of stress. My kids were still little and I was, it was just a really hard time. There was a shift in my career and lots was going on. And I realized I had gone two meals. I had skipped two meals. And I, I really do enjoy not feeling hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized it one day and I, dragged my husband. I think he was in his office and I dragged him out of his office. And I said, you need to know that I haven't eaten two meals. And he's like, okay, good to know. I, I'll, I'm on top of it. I will help you. And I'm like, yep, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Cause I didn't recognize wh- how stressed I was. Right. And he sat down and, and so it was, you know, come on, I, I made lunch and, and come out, you know, come, you know, come join me. And so it was getting me back. So I didn't get to that tipping point. So I wish I could say that it's all gone and it's all better. But like I said, it's an addiction and it's just always being aware of what the triggers are and then what your warning signs are so you can head it off. So after I did, after I told my husband who knew my history, um, had been part of my, you know, I had seen it in in part of my history because we've been friends for 20 years before we got married. Um, It was, it was him, you know, acknowledging it to him and then him saying, okay, no judgment. No, like, you know, criticizing me, just saying, yeah. we know what we have yeah. to do. Now we're going to watch. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So. so it's always going to be a struggle because that's just a part of you and everybody's got to eat. We've had guests on here too that have been bulimic and they just say, you know, and, and anorexic and they just say that, you know, you have to eat every day. So every day is, it's a struggle yep, and that's it's how it's going to be. Get- it does get easier. I mean, you know, that was eight years ago and I recognized it really quick and told him and and we were back on track, you know, with him, him supporting me. And then within a week I was able to do it on my own. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just not, it's not assuming I, I, when I used to work with, you know, people who had disorder eating disorders, I'd say to them, you know, this, this is an addiction like any other addiction. And it's important to know that because then you can understand the lifetime cycle of this. Not that you can't recover, not that you can't, you know, be functional, but it's, it's always something that's, that you have to be careful of. Um, Yeah. I think Joshua Estrin said it really well. He says, I'm not active in my addiction right now. Yeah. Day by day. When he said that, I was like, oh, that's so powerful. Yeah. So when you responded to the Harrow pitch, one of my questions was how do we navigate, you know, through these transformations and relationships and how, how do we, how do we get on an even level playing field where our expectations are not crushed by those around us who are not necessarily seeing our transformation manifest physically, but our, our mindset has been upgraded. And one of the things that you wrote was the first thing was social comparison. And I thought that was such a great point. And can we talk a little bit about that? How as humans were designed to, to compare ourselves and what that leads to? Yeah. Social comparison is an amazing aspect of, of social psychology and psychology in general. And that idea that we look to others to validate ourselves or to make sure we're on track with things. You know, it's not it's not necessarily about, you know, being jealous or 
or um, ranking ourselves. It's just, it's keeping us on track of where we want to be because we typically surround ourselves with people that are similar, you know, in some degree to us. So mm-hmm. if, if they're doing something, then maybe that's a good idea for us. But the problem with social comparison is it can do the opposite, that when we are starting to transform, then those around us are using social comparison and it could go the opposite way where then they're judging themselves. But it's hard to judge ourselves. It doesn't feel good. So they judge us as we're going through the transformation. So, you know, when when if if a person's decided, you know, I I really want to start eating healthier because it makes me feel better. I know it'll lower my blood pressure, you know, whatever the goal is. Other people who aren't making that choice might say, well, come on, you know, stop. You're being obsessive or you're being silly. Like you can have, you know, three donuts. It's okay. (laughs) And, you know, again, yes, three donuts are okay if that's what works for you. But they're doing it because you are holding up that mirror to themselves. They're not really critiquing you. They're critiquing themselves and and they don't want to feel bad about their own choices So they're going to make you feel bad about yours. And that's where that social comparison comes into play and and can really make relationships very strained or very difficult when one person is changing and the other is not. How do you navigate that then? That's a, that's a really great question. (laughs) I think what it, what, what the starting point is, really checking in with your own thoughts because it's very easy for other people to influence us, particularly people we love and are close to and trust. Mm-hmm. So when someone is criticizing a choice that essentially we we're happy about, you know, we, we feel good about it's going back originally to your goal. What is your goal? And, and taking that step back before you react, before you give in, Hey, what's my goal? My goal is to, you know, be able to, you know, run around with my kids and not be out of breath. My goal is to, you know, make sure my blood pressure is at a healthy level. My goal is to, you know, um, get control of my diabetes, whatever it is. And that becomes really your focal point. So it doesn't have to be that you have to defend yourself. It's just, you know, what? that just doesn't work for me right now because I, this is really my goal. Mm-hmm. And instead of, or, and certainly not dragging the other, well, you should do it too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is about you and what works for you and not some kind of justification, defense, or, you know, group effort. It's, it's starting with your own thoughts in, mm-hmm. in my opinion is where it really begins. Yeah. And standing there firmly to that other person and say, my goal is X, Y, and Z, and this is going to help me get there. Absolutely. I think, I think sometimes the use of cognitive dissonance is wonderful. So when I talk with, with some of my clients and they're talking about similar things, particularly in the relationship work that I do, it's, you know, then saying to the person, you know, and I really appreciate anything you can do to support me in this goal. Mm. Because what that does is it creates that cognitive discomfort, the cognitive dissonance in that other person's mind. Well, I can keep making my friend feel bad or making my spouse feel bad, but what does that say about me? Or I can support them as they just asked me to do. So it becomes this like, you know, almost like the angel and devil you see in the cartoons. Like yeah. the person is trying to weigh, okay, which way do I want to go? Do I want to keep like trying to convince them to go against this goal that they said is important? Or do I want to be a good friend or partner and support them. 
and mm -hmm. back off from my own insecurities. Yeah. There's real life struggles that come up. Like, you know, if you're used to going to McDonald's or any fast food joint on Friday night for date night, now all of a sudden you're popping out of the woodwork with this transformation, you're disrupting your partner's life as well. Yep. So how do you, you know, stay sensitive to their needs, their wants and desires if they're not embarking on this transformation, but remain true to your goals? Yeah, it's an awesome question. So I think it comes back to, you know, and, and a lot of the work I do with couples, um, the, the model that I use is based on the business framework. So when I talk to couples about their relationship, their relationship actually is the business. Yeah. And how would you discuss business goals in, in, a, in a business realm? And what it does is it reduces the emotionality. And it, it becomes more about of an, an objective analysis of how to achieve the goals for the business, meaning their relationship. Yeah. So in that kind of situation where one is, you know, for example, you know, wanting all of a sudden um, I do. I work with a lot of couples where the um, one partner has decided, you know, the kids are older and they want to go back into the workforce, you know, male or female. But it's time for them to get back. And the other partner's used to coming home and the house is clean and the meal is made and everything is the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. So for those couples, I say, okay. So if you both have, you know, some clear goals of where you want to get to, how would you discuss it with your business partner or, you know, your manager? What would be the way you would set it up? So I, I, I suggest to them that they have a business meeting and it's different than sitting down and having a conversation because in a business meeting, you make sure you are very respectful. You will make sure that you're talking in terms of facts and concrete um, action steps versus emotion and, and you know, kind of coming at it from that, that very subjective perspective. So in answer to your question, Emma, I would say that when one person has made a decision, you know, I, I really want to start eating in this way for this reason, and here's what I would like to propose. And then the other person gets to chime in. Well, you know, here's here's where I'm not clear on this or here's where that doesn't really work for me. And here's what I'd like to propose. And it becomes a discussion based on negotiation, not mm -hmm. negotiation to change someone, but negotiation to see how both sets of goals can not only be met, but in some ways be aligned. Yeah. So, you know, your example of, of date night at McDonald's. Okay. So how can date night look that maybe doesn't incorporate McDonald's or does incorporate it, but how do we make that safe for the person that that would just be too challenging to adhere to their goal, you know, if, if yeah. we're stopping at you know, McDonald's. So because if, if it was an alcoholic, you wouldn't have a glass of wine in front of your partner. Exactly. So we're so like, oh, whatever. Of course you can handle it. Of course, you, you know, you have willpower. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to eat these fries in front of you. You can eat your salad. And it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Right. So maybe it's that the partner, instead of, you know, that they meet at McDonald's or they go to McDonald's, maybe that partner grabs McDonald's. If that's really the fix that they want, they grab it before the date. Mm -hmm. And the date isn't focused on food. Maybe the date's focus shifts to something else, whether it's, you know, an activity, a different type of activity, um, you know, whatever it might be, but, yeah. but it's not, the food isn't the focal point of the date anymore. Yeah. It's something about, and the focal point really is how can we connect in a way that we both feel rejuvenated and that we both feel connected to each other? Because if we're fighting on two different levels, well, I want McDonald's and I don't, 
that's just going to, that, that really defeats the purpose of a date night because it's going to create a division. So how can we mm -hmm. achieve our goal? Because our goal really about a date night is to connect, not yeah. to create this problem. And is it really about food? Yeah. It, very seldomly, right? Yeah. And so you sit down and you talk about it instead of just saying, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, disrupt this person and what we usually do. But instead you say, this may be a disruption. Let's talk about it and let's find a compromise for both of us. Yeah, I think too, my belief and my my observation from working with couples is that too often we just assume things will work themselves out. And yeah. again, in business, we would never do that. We would never just assume things aren't going right in the business. So we're just going to hope it fixes itself or intuitively will fix itself. Absolutely not. We would sit down, say, this is what's going wrong. This or this is the potential roadblock we see coming up. I mean, that's the ideal to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And let's have a conversation about it instead of just hoping it's going to be okay. We mm -hmm. would never do that in business, but we do it a lot in our relationships. But what about people that don't understand business? Like, and then oh. you're having a conversation with them, like, let's sit down like you're in a business. And they're like, I don't yep. even know what that means. Yep, absolutely. So I start slow. I, with, with the people that I work with, it's tell me what your mission statement is for your relationship. And mm. usually there's. And usually there's crickets going on in the background because 99.9% .9 of people do not have a relationship mission statement. They might have it in their brains, mm -hmm. but they haven't actually written it down. So, and, and I, I think your point is well taken, Kelly, you know, so how do I help them? So I say to them, okay, well, is there a mission statement for where you work or where you used to work? And of course, mm -hmm. almost all organizations do. Okay, why is there a mission statement? Well, it helps keep us focused. It helps keep us all on one track. It, it lets us know what the really important values are. Okay, so why don't you have one for your relationship? And then people are like, oh, yeah. wait a minute. This is gold. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Out of all the guests that have, you know, this is, this is a, a good one. <laughs> this, is, this is a good one. I talk to them about, okay, so when do you review your relationship? And they look at me like, I'm, you know, what are you talking about, Rob? And I'm like, okay, well, in business, how often do you say, or in any, any career, when do you sit down to review if things are going well and how do you know that things are going well? Oh, well, at least once a year, I sit down for my annual review. Okay. Why don't you do that with your relationship? And again, they just, it, I, I love when, I love the pause because they, you know, it's kind of hit them. And yeah. I'm like, no, again, check-ins are great, but a lot of times couples check in when there's an issue rather than let's sit down and really talk about how things have been. Doesn't and, that sound familiar to when we're healthy and all of a sudden we're not anymore? Mm -hmm. And that's when we go to the doctors because mm -hmm. out, out, something's broken. Right. Mm -hmm. Why not go before things are really in crisis? So yeah. I don't work with couples who are in crisis. That is truly therapy, in my opinion. Like you go to a therapist and do couples counseling when things are really, really wrong. Um, and certainly if there's uh, infidelity, abuse, addiction, a loss of a loved one that's really traumatized the couple, that's couples counseling. But couples coaching is about prevention and how to lay the foundation so you have a framework to move forward. So specific to, to what the two of you are experts in, you know, if a couple is, if one is embarking on a more healthy, you know, a positive relationship with food that works for them, in a coupled coaching model, they would have a protocol of how to sit down, present it to their partner and, and come up with the plan of how to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, because they already have, I mean, couples that work with me walk out of their approximately 12 weeks or 12 sessions, however they spread it out, 
with a electronic business plan for their relationship. Oh, I they, love <laughs> They use it to like, I mean, I, I've had couples who will come back for like a booster session and say, yeah, Robin, we pulled out our, our, you know, our protocols for conflict and either this isn't quite working. So we kind of need your help tweaking it or this really worked, but mm -hmm. I would like to do something else. I love and it. I always say we're the CEOs of our life. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We are relate. We treat our homes like a business, right? Yeah. You know, we like we do inventory. We have all of the things going in and out. Well, that's funny because uh, one of the things couples actually have a lot seem to have a lot of fun with is when we talk about titles. So, who's the CFO in your relationship? Because you can't both be the CFO. You can mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, the other person absolutely contributes and and voices an opinion. And, you know, certainly that should be, you know, something that becomes a conversation. Yeah. But overall, who's keeping track of the money? Who is the fleet manager, which is a new one that um, a, a recent couple. And I'm like, who takes care of your cars? Who's the one that makes sure that they're registered and they're just kind of the upkeep? Because if you both are doing it, you're, you're kind of like working too hard. Why not just have mm -hmm. one person who keeps track of it? Not that everything is on their shoulders, but they're just like, oh, wait a minute, your car is due. Do you want to take it in or me? But they're paying attention to it. So it's, how do you, how do couples know to come to you before they're in crisis mode? Like, how are they like, you know what, everything's great, but maybe we should get a coach. Yeah. So there's two basic groups that come to me. Either they, I've, I've had a lot of young couples who are coming in at the start of their commitments that have watched, you know, friends, family members, parents divorce, and they don't want to do it. They're mm -hmm. super successful in their careers and they want the same success in their relationships. So they've started coming to see me to lay the foundation right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. The majority of my couples are couples where they say, you know, we still want to be married. We still want to be together. We're just not as happy as we used to be. We're not quite mm -hmm. as sad. We're not getting that. Yeah. And they they have enough insight to again, as as we were talking about earlier, why wait until things are really like the disconnect yeah. is so big. Mm -hmm. Let's get in early. And but that's you the micromanager and the nagging starts and all yeah. of that. So it's it's great. I I love because they're motivated. They, they, you can see that they still want to work together. They just can't quite figure out how to how to get to a place that's, and I don't say get back to where they were because I don't think mm -hmm. you can go backwards in, in your timeline, but how to get to the place that's now going to work for them wherever they are in life. In this new season. You also mentioned that you work with high achieving women. How, how do high achieving women, you know, how do they navigate their relationships? Have you seen a difference in normally ambitious women versus highly <laughs> driven women? I mean, uh, how they handle their relationships and what their relationship goals are. Is it more clear for someone who's highly ambitious in, in their professional life to be, to have goals for their relationships? Yeah, I think the only difference, you know, I think that for women, and certainly as a generalization, that women's lives aren't as compartmentalized as again, many men's, not all, but many. So women, when there's an issue in their relationship, it's gonna affect their work. It's gonna affect, you know, their their opinion about themselves. And, and it's gonna, it, it's all intertwined for women, for many women. And so I think that's the similarity with all the women I work with. But when it comes to these really high achieving women, they just don't, they, they don't settle in any other way, area of their life. So they're going to be damned. They're not playing. <laughs> they're like, nope, nope, this is not working for me. I do not like this. And I'm not just going to hope that it gets better. Again, I don't think either way is wrong. 
it's just that these women are just used to, you know, they're in charge of so much in every other area of their life. They're just not yeah. going to sit back and they want to be driven in a relationship. Yeah, they yeah. see a problem or they see a situation and then they take action. And do, do they look more for a partnership or do they look more for relationships in which they can be the alpha? Um, hmm. I think that and, uh, my my experience has been they want a partner. They want someone that they don't have to lead because yeah. they do that most of the time in their careers, you know, mm -hmm. leading teams, leading, you know, yeah. organizations. So they want the partner. And actually, I take that back. I do think that there is a, a percentage of high achieving women that when they're at home, they're okay with someone leading a little bit more in their home life. Cause they're like, you know, I do this all day at work. I don't want to think about this stuff. I don't, yeah. don't want to, I don't want to manage anything at the house. Yeah. Make the decisions. I'm good. That's how I am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm the same way, Kelly, that yeah. I, yes, I want, I want, I certainly want my input asked and I want, you know, but when yeah. my husband's like, Oh, I'm thinking of selling our Jeep. I'm like, okay, like, yeah. oh, all right. Like I'm, I'm yeah. good. Yeah. Do I have to do anything? Oh, good. Because I've got all this other business stuff that yeah. I got to take care of. So, um, you know, I think there's a, I guess like anything in life, you can't just say it's the same for everybody. But I think with high achieving women, at least with their relationship, and even if they don't want to be in full control of it, they, they don't want to just assume that something magical will take care of it and fix it. So they're going to. Yeah. I love it. Is there, a, is there a magical age, Dr. Robin, that, you know, maybe women who come to see you or couples who come to see you in their 40s versus in their 20s? that they're just at a level where communication and expectations just become easier, that it's less mm -hmm. about the ego and being right and trying to prove each other wrong. Yeah. That is there a point that we realize that we're just two individuals who are building a relationship because we want to, and we want to, you know, make each other better as opposed to that ego driven younger self that we are. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's age and, and, with with your specific question, I think 40s and 50s are a magical couple of decades for women. Like that is where, again, in, in the, my experience and talking to other people who do this kind of work, you know, women get to those ages and they're like, nope, I'm done. I'm done serving everybody else and not serving myself at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, you know, again, and one of my favorite posts that um that i r regularly refer to is it's not about me first when i say i want what i want it's about me too that i'm as much of a priority as my kids as my husband like i don't have to be second and somehow that it's not selfish if i say i i want to take care of myself too not first before everybody else but i also think it's, it's dependent, on, yeah. dependent on where you are in the relationship because I think that you could get into a, a new relationship at age 50 and there's still that conflict of, but this is the way I've always done it. And this is the way that works for me. So why can't we do it this way? So I think it depends not just on age, but, but you know, whether you're in a new relationship at age 60 or two clients I just work with who just got married at age 80 and they worked with oh me. Yeah, right. I did. A, I did a, a. I did work with the um, grandchildren of the husband, and they were talking about how they created this couple's, you know, this couple's business plan. And he was like, you know what? We're gonna, you know, he and his new wife were were just getting married, and he said, we don't have time to mess around. We don't want to mess up. We, you know, we want this. And so we did, and they were so wow. much fun because they were just like, yep, 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 let's get this doing so we can just use it to move forward. 
That's so, awesome. Isn't yeah. that the cutest thing you've ever heard? That's it's, so cute. It's lovely. I, I think that the more that um, our medical technology can really make not just life longer, but, but the quality of life also mm -hmm. longer. I love meeting these older couples that are like, okay, you know, I've lost two spouses or I've been divorced a couple of times, but it doesn't mean life has to stop. Love or sex has to stop just because I'm a certain age. And I think that's, I, they're an inspiration to me. Oh, I, I like that. Sex at 80. Sounds like <laughs> yep. very much my life goal. Can you, can you tell me in your experience, because inquiring minds, I'm sure I want to know, Everyone who's watching, you can thank me later. Why is it that women get this rap for nagging or being control freaks? Where does that come from? Is that really the way women express themselves? Is it the way that men perceive women to be communicating their needs? Well, that's a whole, we could do a whole two episodes on this. So <laughs> the, the thing about women and powerful strong women or women who want to like express themselves is that is not the long-term societal standard so when you think about the 1920s 1950s women had a very clear role we were passive we were demure we had a very specific role as nurturers and we tended to be followers and not leaders and the beauty of standards and norms is that it creates comfort that, you know, okay, so that's a woman, that's what a woman is supposed to be, and this is what a man's supposed to be. Well, the 1960s and 1970s flipped a lot of that, and it continues. As, we, as we're moving forward, it's not stopping. It looks different in terms of it's not necessarily a huge movement like it was in the 60s or 70s. Now it's just a continuous movement, but it's continuing to challenge those standards. And so when women start saying things like, you know, I don't, I don't like that. That's not how this is going to yeah. be. It's breaking that norm that we held for Stop complaining. centuries. Yeah. And that creates a discomfort. So now all of a sudden pe people, including other women, but but certainly, you know, men are like, wait a minute, that that's not how it's supposed to be. And, and they might not even realize it because they know they shouldn't be saying that out loud. So they shove it down and then the covert bias bubbles up. And then it's like, oh, you're being a nag or, oh, you're, you're just, you know, you're just being a witch. Yeah. And those words, try, you know, intentionally or unintentionally try and bring women back to the yeah. the, the traditional place of you're not supposed to be talking. Yeah. My yeah. husband is not allowed to say the word nag. That exactly. word just goes right up my. I just, it's like your socks are on the ground. I'm asking you to pick them up, but I'm the nag. I mean, did I miss something? Right. And you so know? it's like, where does that come from? Yeah, I, I think it's that just, it's that defensiveness. Like I, I don't, you know, that's not how I thought it was supposed to be in a relationship. And now you're doing this to me yeah. instead of, well, if I'm a nag, then, then you are irresponsible. Like, I mean, it, it's yeah. a quid pro quo, then I, it's not just me. Mm -hmm. So why couldn't it be, Hey, this is what, this is what makes, you know, makes me happy. Or this is what I want. I want the house to look a certain way. Cause that makes me feel good or makes me feel calm. So I would appreciate if you could do that because it, it actually makes me feel better. Like I, I can focus better. Yeah. Pick your damn box up. I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like just, yeah. It's, it's, and I wonder sometimes if it's the way we communicate as women that makes men feel like we're coming off as whiny or naggy. I sometimes, you know, when we say things like I feel, 
and I need, and they're kind of like, oh, here we go with those emotions again. Probably has her period. So, yeah. Oh, that's definitely not it. Yeah, I hate like, that. that me crazy. Think, can we put that in the business contract? I think a lot of times we definitely can. Like certain words and, and triggers, absolutely, that can be covered in terms of appropriateness and psychological safety. But I think that for women, we hold a lot in. And yeah. we, 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 we don't want to create conflict because I think, that, again, it's a generalization. Women strive for harmony. And then when we do say something, it, yeah. it, oh my God, it comes out so strongly and with a tone we didn't really mean, but we've waited, you know, five times before we said it. Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying it the first time, like that really bothers me. That makes me feel disrespected because I try and keep the house clean. So I would appreciate if if you didn't disrespect me by leaving your, your socks on the floor. That's a whole different thing than, you know, that maternal, like pick up your socks. No, that, that's just disrespectful. And I don't appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So. Oof, so much to unpack. We, no. gotta, go. oh, we gotta go. Okay. So oh my gosh, already? Yeah. You have to come back, Dr. Robin. You yeah. have to come back and talk about nagging some more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really sure we can it. all use some serious couples counseling too. So we're gonna need you in life. I'm gonna keep yeah. you in my back pocket here. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And anyone who's watching the show who wants to reach out to Dr. Robin. I mean, this has been a phenomenal show. You've heard her expertise. All of her links will be on Instagram, on Facebook, her website, links to all her social. Please go check her out. She's just a phenomenal human. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for the work you do. I appreciate it very much. We're grateful for you. Have a great night. Bye. Bye.